Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at Alexana with Brian Weil. It's uh, July 22nd, 2020. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. First question, most important question, why wine? Well, it's kind of a, a long story, but we'll condense it a little bit. Um, <laughs> but uh, I actually started out in wine um, through culinary school. Before that, though, we stepped back to about 2000. I started at Oregon State, and I was looking at engineering and wasn't quite sure that was something I wanted to do long term, so I loved it. I love sciences and always thought about cooking, but never had really done much. So um, after a couple years at Oregon State, I switched over to Lynn Benton Community College where they had a great culinary school and it was only about a 20 person, uh, 20 person per class two year program. So a pretty small, intimate program, which was really fun. Uh, I spent two years there, but my first term the chef actually who did the wine program said I need another person that's 21 to be able to do this class because we only have a few people in the class and to make the quota and have you know the budget to be actually pouring wine I need another person so I said heck, heck yeah let's do it let's, uh, let's learn about wine in school <laughs> and, and get to drink it and so we did that uh, and I kind of got the, bu the bug right away so during that first uh, term, I took that class, but then every term after that, I tried to take as many classes as we possibly could for wine. Um, and it actually turned into, I wanna go learn more. So after two years in culinary school, I actually went back to Oregon State and did the Enology Viticulture program there uh, through the food science department and was able to finish that in about two and a half years. So uh, thanks mom and dad for the five, six year college plan, but I really uh, I enjoyed um, doing the sciences in very different career um, bases, but uh, ended up as wine is what I really wanted to do. So after uh, that, I, I kind of got into the real world, but throughout culinary school and throughout um, the Enology Viticulture School at Oregon State, I was able to work at some great restaurants and then um, kind of turn that into wineries. So one of the first ones um, is actually not too far from here. I grew up down in West Salem, which is about 30 minutes from the winery here. We're in the Dundee Hills. And um, the Joel Palmer House, it was one of my first real restaurant gigs. And I was able to work in the front of the house, uh, kind of doing wine service and, mm -hmm. and, and waiting. And I got to serve a lot of um, great winemakers at the time. And I think probably spill some wine on them too, because uh, <laughs> I was just getting kind of into it. And fortunately enough though, um, the, the owner Jack Zarnecki was uh, really great to let me try Pinot Noirs and a bunch of different wines, but predominantly Pinot Noir here in the Valley were, is what they specialize in. And so getting to try that many great wines partial bottles that were left over from winemakers that would bring 20 bottles to share with their eight guests and I thought that was crazy but <laughs> now I see that's pretty much normal what we do um, but yeah it was a it was a great experience there to really catch the Pinot Noir bug if you will I had already found I liked wine but to find that I liked Pinot Noir that much and want to go make it was crazy because it's such a crazy grape to make and to grow but uh, that's really where, where it all kind of started so after Joel Palmer House, I was fortunate enough to um, work up at Domain Serene for a year, 
and then um, worked at Tai Yi Wine Cellars down in Corvallis throughout my winemaking kind of schooling, mm -hmm. uh, which is a very small winery. So I kind of went from kind of medium-sized Oregon winery down to one of the more boutique sizes, only a couple thousand cases. And I was really fortunate to work uh, with uh, the owners and uh, Barney Watson, actually, who's a, who was one of the original professors at Oregon State for the wine program. And so worked there for two years throughout school, got to do everything from the vineyard, the winery, uh, got to work in the tasting room, uh, got to work in their hazelnut orchard. So not only was I growing nine acres of you know, grapes, I was also working with 30 acres of hazelnuts, uh, which was really fun. Uh, just kind of fast forward to graduation year. Uh, I've been working a little bit um, at Taiyi, but getting ready to maybe go to a bigger winery and wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I'd been making wine with the, uh, the Jared Etzel and Mikey Etzel uh, and a few other of our college roommates um, that went to school at Oregon State. Uh, we were just doing a small project that we worked with at Broadly, so I wasn't sure if I wanted to kind of continue that or go somewhere else. So I, I got an opportunity uh, back in 2008 actually to go to Washington State. Um, that was right after I graduated. It was up to Hogue Cellars, um, very large kind of uh, you know, Washington State Winery in Prosser. Um, so I spent about five years up there um, making anywhere from 6,000 to 10,000 tons, which was over a half million cases a year. So really got to cut my teeth in winemaking up in Washington at the bigger scale. A lot of opportunity as a young 23-year-old kid out of school, really energetic, uh, just wanting to learn. I had four winemakers I got to work with there, and uh, it was just a great opportunity to really thrive, learn, grow um, and so I spent five years I was able to go down to New Zealand and Australia uh, through the company because they owned a bunch of wineries down there in 2009 I did that and then just kind of continued craft um, and to, to learn my craft and to really pick up kind of the big picture winemaking. <laughs> Always was the goal to come back to Oregon I wasn't sure how long that was going to take um, but I got an opportunity to interview with Lynn Penarash for this winery which is behind me which is Alexana uh, and that was in 2012 and fortunately uh, I got hired and um, she stuck with me and uh, hung around for a few years and helped us uh, really build this winery to what it is. It's a beautiful gravity flow winery that she designed. It's uh, just got a great barrel regime, a great vineyard that she's worked with since 2006. So I came on board in 12 in the summer and was able to kind of finish up the 2011 vintage with, with her at Penarash. And then we brought all the production over here from 2012 on. And so now it's been, uh, this will be my ninth vintage coming up here in 2012, uh, 2012 to 2020. And it's just been a really good uh, opportunity to learn from her and then kind of grow into my own shoes as a winemaker. And, uh, and I've had also the opportunity to not only build this from the ground up for the owner, which is Dr. Ravana, he's a cardiologist in Houston, but he also has a winery down in Napa and Argentina. And so in 13 and 14, I actually got to spend some time down in Argentina building that winery for him. So it's been a, a lot of trials and tribulations building two wineries at the same time, basically, <laughs> but um, really rewarding uh, to see him come to fruition. Uh, start being really successful and just uh, have a lot of fun uh, in two different continents and, uh, and making some great wines, uh, just really quality driven winemaking. And can't say enough about uh, the owner of this facility as well as the other th two wineries that um, he's, he's very quality driven in his vineyards and his, his winemaking and everything that we do. So it's been pretty easy to make great wine because I uh, had a great um, mentor with Lynn and uh, just great facility and, and barrels and everything that you could ask for. So sure. it's been fun to be here and uh, who knows what the future holds.
Well, we'll have to ask you about that in a minute. But first, I'm curious, you mentioned uh, catching the bug pretty quickly when you took your kind of first wine class as part of culinary school. What was it about wine as a beverage that, that hooked you? And then what was it about wine as a product that made you want to uh, kind of further your education? Yeah. So I think it was really fun to learn about wine because it's grown from this basically one single thing. It's a grape, you know, and it's, um, it's agriculture. And I grew up farming wheat and barley, which uh, now I look at it and I'm like, wow, barley probably went into beer that now I'm drinking because um, it was it was very much something our family did growing up was going to eastern Washington and uh, working the family farm in the summers and then come back to Oregon where we lived. And so it was really... Uh, fortunate that it was an agricultural kind of background I grew up in. And uh, I just loved uh, being able to turn something like a grape into wine. I thought it was so magical and mysterious, and I think it still is. It's being 20-something vintage, I'll be coming up on my career right now. I think you're always constantly learning and uh, to learn more and more about this grape um, and to be able to taste it and see you know, the different vintages and how people grew it and maybe good or bad vintages. And um, I think and still made a great product. It really intrigued me, and so I love the the fact that you can use science, you can grow grapes in agriculture, um, and then food science as well, and just kind of turning a product. Uh, I think the chef in me really <laughs> enjoys the hands hand working part of it, and the scientist loves the kind of the lab, and the the agricultural loves the vineyard part. So it kind of it's fun to have it all come together. Mm -hmm. And you also talked about Pinot Noir as, as, as being like the, the uh, of the way wines you were trying uh, of the, the intriguing one, but also a difficult one, as you said. So tell me about what, what is unique about Pinot Noir, what, what attracted you to it, and then the difficulty in making it versus other varietals. Sure. I think, you know, I've worked with a lot of grapes in Washington and Argentina and New Zealand. And, um, I think uh, I've worked with Pinot a bunch, too, in some of those countries, uh, but really, uh, to me, the big reds are fun to make. They're pretty easy, if you will, in the long run, because you got two, year, two years for the most part when you age them to really kind of tweak the blends and do different things in barrel regime. Uh, with Pinot Noir, it's a pretty fast-paced varietal in the sense that we bottle it here about 10 or 12 months after it was fermented. Um, it's a very fickle grape, as a lot of people will tell you. I think it's really difficult in the vineyard. We're in a cool climate, so that alone, cool climate, tends to be a bit more difficult with certain pressures and and mildews and molds and all the fun stuff we get here with the late season rains. Um, and then in the winery, it just, it doesn't, either wants to do what it wants to do and you let it do it and it's a great wine, or it really wants to go in a different direction and you kind of have to guide it through the process. So I think in a gravity flow winery here, you know, Pinot Noir winemaking, trying to do a little bit less is always a great thing, but I think sometimes you have to intervene and maybe it's wanting to go reductive or it's really getting haldehytic or whatever it may be doing, but understand kind of the science behind what's happening and what you can or can't do or should or shouldn't do. And some of the best things in winemaking is to just not do things, but at one point you kind of have to. So to me, Pinot Noir though, um, it really takes this interesting path throughout the, not only the, the vineyard, but the, in the fermentation, and then the malolactic, and then the barrel aging, it really it goes all over the place in, um, in terms of what it wants to do, and it's just fun to watch it. It can be hold on tight kind of stuff too, and watching it, and really understand where it's gonna be, and know that maybe this really funky wine in the beginning, you know is gonna clean up and be a gorgeous wine at the end, but you gotta let it kind of do its thing and, and hang on tight, because 
I think um, we almost have to make Pinot Noir like a white wine, if you will, because it just doesn't love a lot of oxygen. It doesn't have a lot of color to absorb um, and phenolics to absorb some of that excess oxygen. So really being diligent in your barrel selections and your aging regime, but also just in your winemaking practices and just trying to be as cautious as possible with it. So I think it's something um, every winemaker, no matter what varietal you work with, will always say they're constantly learning. And I think for Pinot Noir especially, with so many variables out there with different clones and where things are grown and how it ferments and just all sorts of things. It, it's something that's really been fun to work with because you know, you have Cabernet and you have Merlot and Syrah and all these different big red varietals and they have tons of clones within those varietals. But I think with Pinot Noir, the clonal part of it is the most intriguing to me because Vainsville tastes very different than Bamard, even though it's the same clone uh, or the same varietal, it's a, it's a very different wine. And so to me, I almost feel like the 13 different clones I work with here are like almost different varietals in that sense. So that's been fun too, to kind of really dive deeper into some of the different clonal mm -hmm. mixes that we've gotten here from some of the pioneers back in the day. Mm -hmm. So, so you, uh, tell me about the importance of your kind of formal wine education and what you learned while you were the informal wine education as well. Sure. So you're you're in school. You're also working at Thai. You're working other places. Tell me the the importance of the of the of the background you got, and then what else you learned in the kind of real world. Yeah. So I think I started with more technical training in both culinary field, the culinary field, and the winemaking fields by going to school and learning about it without having much experience ahead of time. And I think that was really nice because it was kind of a blank slate if you will and didn't have any kind of predisposed thoughts on how wine should be made or how you know food should be I, I, I have my own ideas and everything but um, I was really able to kind of absorb a lot of that information from the, the professors and the and the other students and the people that I got to learn with um, and so I think the formal education is really important for me um, especially nowadays I think there's a lot of people with great education and great experience so I think you kind of have to have that roundedness to really I think to, to really succeed and do, do a lot of great things here. Um, I think everyone can do well with no training. I think it's a craft that you can learn and pick up through skilled, you know, educated people that have made wine for 10, 20 years and have a great background or from people who've just been doing it their whole life because their family's doing it. And I think there's so many different ways to get into the business, but for me, I didn't have family that were in wine. I didn't have a lot of friends that were in it. So getting that education first was a kind of my stepping stone to really be able to thrive hopefully later on. And so I think the formal education was super important um, to learn about all sorts of fun stuff. I, I, I love to say I don't remember, but you know, organic chemistries and biologies and things that are very, very important wine making, but maybe the specifics within those are not something you use on a daily basis, but on a daily basis, the practical stuff I think is super important. And so having that internships or, you know, me fortunately got to work for two years with some great people at Taiyi when I was going to school. And so kind of asking the questions at school and then actually going and doing it was super important. So I think the combination of education and, and actual physical doing the job is super important, but I'm not sure I'd be where I was at today without that formal education mm -hmm. to really jumpstart me and kind of back up and really give me a great uh, you know stepping stone to, to move on with my career. And then right out of college, I was very fortunate to you know go up to a very, very large winery and you can't do anything but not learn because uh, you're sitting there with you know half a million cases and you're constantly doing work, you're constantly bottling, constantly looking at all sorts of different things of the business. And so it's really one of those things that 
um, small and big, I think is important too. I always talk to my interns and my, my staff is like, get a really big winery experience. I think it's super important because you're never gonna see some of the same stuff like here where we do everything with manual punch sounds. We don't pump the wines over. We don't really pump the wine at all here versus you go to a larger winery. That's all you do for the most part and you're never actually physically touching the wine. And so to me, kind of going back to the, why do I love Pinot Noir? Because it can be made in big tanks, but I like making it in smaller tanks and just that hands-on feel and in your face, you know, where it's at. So um, education, super important, but large and small wineries and everything in between, I think is important too, especially earlier on in your career, you know, travel a little bit, see the world of wine, but get into a, a more full-time position at some of these different size wineries and get to see the full season because some people jump around to 10 harvests and I think that's fun, but I think it's also important to see what we do in the off season, see what barrel aging is about, what bottling and filtration, whatever it may be that you don't always get a see during harvest when you're sticky and wet and just processing grapes and fermenting and barreling down, which is the biggest part of how we make the wine. But um, I think the other side of it is really important too. So um, I've had great mentors, not only in school, but also I think in the actual wineries. And mm -hmm. I think it's super important to have both, but education was a, a good stepping stone for me. Let's talk about your developing, you, you took a such an interesting route with this small experience, large experience, Oregon, Washington. Tell me about developing your winemaking style and philosophy and, and sort of the takeaways along the way that led you to your philosophy you have today. Like I said, I was kind of a blank slate, so I learned a lot from my mentors. So I think Lynn Penarash being, for sure the one that really you know guided me in Oregon winemaking because I think the small scale at Tai and getting to learn from Tony Reinders and Drew Boyd a bit at Domaine Serene when I was working there I think those were really important people but spending you know a good chunk of my life um, when I came back to Oregon back in 2012 with Lynn um, probably more than she wanted but uh, you know spending daily you know especially their first few years a lot of time with her and really getting to fine-tune how you make Oregon Pinot Noir um, super high-end Oregon Pinot Noir was really uh, was great so I think she's really um, been a big part of my career and where I've headed in the last nine years especially here um, even though she's not consulting with us here she's still a great friend mm -hmm. and um, and so I think it's important to um, kind of look at you know the different different sides of the business too and she had a wealth of knowledge not only in winemaking but the business and the and the vineyards for sure she works with so many great vineyards out there so I think she was able to really um, put a big influence on my my winemaking style but stylistically to me I think um, getting to make half a million cases before I came to this business you, you learn a lot about how you make a consistent product year after year and I think that's really cool especially for some of these wines that you'll see in the supermarkets and people really expect that consistency of um, you know that flavor profile from year after year no matter the vintage and I think Washington does a fairly great job of consistency vintage to vintage but back to Oregon you'll have a 2013 next to a 2014 and an 11 next to a 12 these vintages are almost the exact opposite so learning how to make those vintages consistent and quality even though the vintage is so different and going to show such a different mm -hmm. wine was really important so um, kind of not answering your question all the way but I think it is to me, stylistically, showing the vintage is the most important thing, especially in Oregon, because they are so variable and it's what we celebrate is that vintage variability. And so really letting the, the vintage show through. So putting our time out in the vineyard, uh, we have 56 acres here. We work with a bit of offsite fruit as well, but um, we have 32 different blocks of grapes here at the, the property. So really working 
with the vintage uh, in the vineyard first and then bringing it into the winery and not doing too much to it, everyone will say I'm as minimal intervention winemaker as possible. You're still going to do a lot of things to the wines and you're going to make a lot of decisions on the winemaking, but minimizing adding anything to the grapes. Mm -hmm. If you have great grapes, put them in a little bit of new French oak, age them, put them in a bottle. It's really all you need to do, but there's things in between that you definitely have to make decisions on. So I think trying to be as gentle as possible, on especially Pinot Noir, um, small lots is I think a philosophy that I've learned I really like because keeping this vineyard separate is really important because it is so diverse out here with the different soil types and clones. Um, so we keep a lot of individual tanks throughout harvest separate, about a hundred different lots of Pinot Noir. And um, so you have to learn how to track things too, uh, very well of course, but um, it's, it's really um, important to me to let the vintage and the fruit show. I want a wine to taste like fruit, I don't want it to taste uh, like too much oak, I don't want it to taste like too much, uh, you know, maybe stem. A lot of people like whole cluster, but I think with this Dundee Hills Vineyard, um, it almost overpowers that fruit. And so to me, a wine should taste like the fruit which it comes from and the vintage which it comes from. So how do you do that? You be as gentle as possible. You really work, um, you know, with the land first and get it in the winery. I always find it after you fermented these grapes in the winery, uh, you really can't do anything else but screw it up for the next few, you know, six to eight months of aging. So really, the goal is to be a steward to these grapes that you've brought in and you fermented, and really let them shine through the barrel aging and into the bottle. And uh, and hopefully you have that time capsule of all that hard work that you've done and really knocked it out. Mm -hmm. So I think you probably let them leave real quick. Okay. I don't know, it might be, sorry, no, you're fine. All, all good, we'll, pause, we'll just pause for a moment here. It's a really interesting answer. A really interesting answer to my philosophy, I like that. I have a follow-up question I'll ask you, but. I don't know, it seemed I, like a, I like probably it. bounced around a million different places. No, I like it, because I think, I think that's how most people are. They, it's hard to articulate it, but for, that's an interesting articulation because it's like, yeah, everybody wants to be a minimalist, but at the same time, there's things you have to do, and then there's but there's things you don't want to do because you know, like it'll screw. So it's interesting that finding that balance is uh, is and it's one of the better articulations of it actually that we've heard. So yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of things you can add to wine. I trust me, I've trialed it all, especially at the big scale, because you're looking to try to get lower you know costs in your wines, sure. or how do you do that and get better yields and all these other things. So sure. I think uh, at small scale, it's it's really easy to use that crutch, or at the big scale, it's really easy to use that crutch, but at the small scale, I think it's a lot easier to try to just do it right, and you don't have the option. I think uh, at the big scale, dilution is the solution, and that's not, uh, you can't do that at the small scale. You can do that scale. here, no. <clears throat> so you, you, you talked about your, your philosophy there. Uh, you go to a big spot first, and you, like you say, you learn how to make wine consistently uh, at a large scale. Tell me about kind of undoing that and coming when you come to Oregon. Tell me about kind of undoing some of the lessons you've learned and having to sure. kind of rethink that that those steps. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a lot about making sure we're you know hitting the bottom line too at these price points that we were making ten to thirty dollar bottles. Uh, a little different here in uh, Alexana now, um, but you know, getting great yields and and really minimizing too much hand labor. And really some of the things that I don't even think about as much here because it's not much of an issue at the small scale, when you times you know, 10, 15,000 cases up to 50,000 cases or 500,000 cases, 
uh, there's a lot of money to be had out there, and especially when you work for a larger corporation, which Hogue was owned by, um, they're definitely wanting to watch that bottom line and making sure they're profitable. And I think Hogue was very quality driven, don't get me wrong, I think it's one of the better quality driven wineries in Eastern Washington and one of the originals from 1982, actually my birth year, so that was something fun to always tell the, some of the winemakers who've been there for a long time. But. Um, <laughs> You're working with a kid you started uh, growing up when you were just starting to make wine here. But uh, yeah, it is, um, it is hard to break some of those things, but I think they did nothing but give me good habits just at a bigger scale. It's just mm -hmm. bigger tanks, it's bigger presses, it's more barrels, it's a lot of different things, but it's, it's still winemaking. Um, you know, there's a lot of things you can add to really clarify bigger tanks and do all sorts of techniques to get better yields out of the, the leaves and things like that. So, I think quality was always there, but we were also thinking about, you know, consistency of the product uh, from year after year uh, to make it pretty similar, as well as, for sure, trying to um, get those yields and, and really make, make that bottom dollar. So, I think coming back here, we're still trying to, you know, watch our costs like any good business is going to do, but quality is number one, and Dr. Romano has always been really um, great about that. And so trying to think less maybe about how I can cut a half an hour out of my employee's day um, to, to maximize you know the 50 other employees I had up in Washington. I might be thinking more of maybe different trials I'm going to do this year and, and really focusing more on more on the winemaking and mm -hmm. getting maybe a, a little bit more into the hands-on part of it which I, I kind of missed when I was up there. I was still able to do a lot in Washington hands-on but um, when I got back here literally had to build the winery from zero to where it is today. It was a shell I started you know and it was a hole in the ground when I started and we were only about six months away from harvest and I go you want to make wine here and it's just a big hole in the ground they just <laughs> dug out and so um, I think we really had to really just dumb it back down, to be honest, to just kind of more classic winemaking that I knew when I grew up here in Oregon, making some wines um, with Tai and with a, a label that I worked with my college roommates. And it's really, it was fun, but um, I think I definitely had to kind of step out of the box a bit from that bigger scale and really start thinking more solely about quality and then some of the other stuff will fall into place. Um, I didn't have any employees that first year either. Um, after harvest, I, I had a few people help with harvest, and they left me. And I'm like, well, what do I do now? And you know, and I was making about 5,000 cases then, and it was great because uh, I got to touch every barrel, top every barrel, see every barrel every day basically, and be hands-on as much as I possibly could because that, that was the only guy. And now that I have a staff of a couple people, it's nice to to have that help. But I still love being hands-on, and mm -hmm. so I think really. You know, still trying to make great wines with having a great laboratory on site. That was something I learned from the big scale is a lot of lab work. Um, I don't like to overdo the lab work, but I do think that having that background and that, that knowledge and that data so you're backing up your decisions, I think it's really important, especially when you're making millions of dollars worth of wine. I think um, it's kind of a, a QA, you know, making sure you're your quality control is there and, and really focusing on the, nothing but quality. But then in the smaller scale too, being able to get to every single vineyard I work with, because you know, when you're working with 10,000 tons, 3,000 or more acres of grapes up in Washington, uh, you're probably not gonna see all those grapes too often. Um, so we split it up between four or five winemakers and another few vineyard uh, managers, viticulturists. Versus here, I see every one of my blocks, if not, every week, every couple times a week during harvest. And um, I'm really looking at these little 
two acre blocks, one acre blocks, and making these little small decisions. So I think um, getting back into the vineyard and getting more hands on in the cellar has been something I've really enjoyed and getting away from too many spreadsheets and getting away from too much crazy tracking and um, crazy experiments because really the, I think the experiment is trying to make great wine in a tough year or even in a hot year or just whatever year it may be here in Oregon. Um, so really kind of dumbing it down but still having that great experience and background um, and, just, and just getting back into hands-on winemaking and, and vineyard management. Mm -hmm curious about sort of growing with this site and, and input you had on it and, and then sort of learning learning your new site, like I said, kind of on the fly uh, uh, for your very first vintage. Sure. So I think um, it was pretty easy to, to kind of learn on the fly from the first vintage on because Lynn had been making the wines here since 2006. Um, she had always brought the grapes from the vineyard over to Penner Ash. And then she built this winery very similar to Penner Ash. And so she was working on the design with Larry Farrar before I got hired. And so really the design part was done and just the, the square facility, if you will, but the tanks and the, you know, the equipment and learning about fittings and all sorts of things. I never thought I needed as much information as I do now on. Um, but I, I learned a lot on the fly having to because we only had a few months to get this harvest uh, going. And fortunately, it wasn't anywhere near the capacity of this uh, 17,000 square foot facility. We were at about 5,000 that first year. And so it was very manageable, but um, everything was new. It's like one step forward, two steps back. And so really having to to, to learn on the fly quickly and to adjust. And mm -hmm. I remember the first day of harvest here, we thought everything was great. We had tested everything. And for some reason, the distimmer and the sorting table weren't fitting right. And we realized some of the sloping up here was different than where we tested because the crush pad wasn't available to test it until just a few days after uh, we were starting to get ready for grapes. And so uh, we had to build some stands and luckily we had people still doing the construction in the winery at the time. So we had a carpenter come help. And um, I think it was, it was challenging, but all manageable. And I think that's harvest. I mean, even in an old winery that you've been doing it for 20 years, things are going to be different. Every year here, there's a challenge and um, it may not be my distiller doesn't fit on my table. It may be that the forklift got stuck because an intern decided to drive it in the gravel or it may be that, you know, we don't have enough pickers or we may, you know, have half of my team is out sick and that could be a very real thing this year with the, the issues we're seeing in the world. So I think it's um, important to just always be adapting and as a winemaker, it's, it's something that everything's constantly changing, the vintage and the winery and maybe your mood or whatever. You get older, you, you learn how to do things a little bit better maybe or, or differently. And so I think constantly on the fly, but having that solid of Lynn backing me up and knowing that everything's going to be all right. And worst case scenario, I'll just send it over to her winery and she can process it, right? <laughs> that first year. But no, um, it, was, it was great to have that, that turnkey winery, if you will. Um, knowing what Penner Ash did and really taking it to the next level with this facility and, um, and just being able to kind of adjust and, and really succeed because we were set up for success and uh, 2012 was a great vintage, thank God, because um, it was a really a perfect vintage to start with here. You mentioned earlier the kind of unique setup with Dr. Ravana owning three wineries in three different locations. Uh, you mentioned having a role in the Argentinian facility. Tell me, tell me about that process as well and setting up a, a winery and a, a, a new spot for you. Yeah, so I don't speak Spanish, I speak German. Um, so that was tough. Uh, 
considering Argentina, there's not too many German speakers down there. Um, and so really, I, I had to learn a bit of Spanish, uh, a lot of seller Spanish, and uh, fortunately the first year down there I had a translator that worked with me quite heavily. And um, so I worked with um, Santiago Archival down there in Argentina, who's a very uh, well-known Argentine winemaker, great guy has a great family and just a, a couple great wine brands that he works with, um, specifically Archibald Farrar, and then he has one of his own now. That's a, a beautiful brand, but he was working and consulting at the Vines of Mendoza, which is a beautiful 3,000 acre resort down in um, the Uco Valley, just south of Mendoza by about an hour, hour and a half. And so um, Dr. Ivana actually purchased some property back in 2008 at the Vines of Mendoza, where you can purchase your own parcels. So you got about, uh, about nine acres down there at that time as now we're about 17 acres total, but um, he had purchased a few acres in 08 and then uh, amassed a few more until where it was time to build a winery down there and, and, and make the wines there. He had made them always at a custom crush facility. Santiago was working for that custom crush facility as a consultant as well, so we were able to work with Santiago at the new facility. Um, so in 13 and 14, after I built this winery, got the opportunity to go down there and about every month or so, I'd spend about a week or 10 days down there working with the team. Uh, we had a winemaker, uh, kind of junior winemaker down there working with me, as well as a tasting room person, and then working with the consultant winemaker and our architect and construction guys. Um, so a lot of emails, but also having to be hands-on, especially once the first harvest happened in 14. So um, worked a lot with our general manager here, John Gablehausen, who um, was constantly down there with me at the time. And uh, we would kind of go back and forth and, I spent as little as, uh, I want to say, four days was my shortest trip to go down and taste wines and make sure everything was good and up to about 40 days at a time. So um, about six months of my life in 13 and 14 were spent down there kind of building the winery. 14 was the first vintage um, in the new facility. 13 was kind of the first vintage I worked with at the Custom Crush place. And then, uh, yeah, 14, 15, and 16, I spent uh, harvest down there every year. Um, can be challenging because you just finished harvest four or five months ago and it's time to already go into it. And I always joked like I'm in the middle of harvest in Argentina, but I'm hiring interns, ordering barrels, finalizing any contracts that may not be done yet for grapes here in Oregon. Um, and then I'd be back in Oregon doing the same thing for Argentina <laughs> when I'm in the middle of harvest in Oregon. So it was, it was challenging to do that for three or four years straight. Um, I don't really wish that on anyone, at least in a winemaker full-time position. I think it's, it's less challenging maybe traveling as an intern and getting to go see great new places, but having the responsibility of two wineries um, was a lot, but it was something that really helped me grow in my career. And you learn, you learn through some failures, you learn through some successes. And I think there was a lot of success, but we failed at times. And mm -hmm. we were running on generator and barely had water our first uh, harvest. And the generator ran down there for a couple years straight because there was no power. We were out in the middle of nowhere in this high elevation, beautiful spot right in the base of the Andy Mountains. Um, it was very challenging and fairly hostile place to grow grapes in terms of the weather. And um, so I felt right at home coming from Oregon. So um, <laughs> in a different, just a different way. And 14 was a very challenging vintage for them because they had a lot of rain, but I just finished the 13 vintage here in Oregon with a bunch of rain and we had a little bit of rot and mildew. And I was like, well, this seems normal to me. And they were all worried, but I think we made great wine because um, you can pull from some different backgrounds. So mm -hmm. it's been a fun project. It's called Corazon del Sol. It's a beautiful winery that 
um, has been up and running for quite a few years now, and uh, and it's fun to just kind of pass that project on to the winemakers that are there now, and just kind of get a watch and see my wines come out that I, I made. I brought my team from here down to there during harvest a few times, as well as we brought some of the winemakers uh, from there um, up here for harvest. So it's been a fun collaboration, and now it's fun to drink the wines that we've made and put the hard work in uh, for those so many years. At least you get to taste the fruits of all your work, right? That's right, the fruits of our labor, it's true. Work hard, play hard, and uh, trying them after or during work sometime uh, is really fun. <laughs> You have a pretty unique spot of having pretty significant experience in the Washington industry, the Oregon industry, and in Argentina. Tell me the how they're alike and how they're different. I think it's uh, it's all about growing grapes, and so to me, the grape part of it and just the winemaking is is fairly straightforward. How you you know adjust sulfur dioxide, how pH you know interacts with different color. It's just it's all the same, and tannins and anthocyanins and the chemistry and the the actual biology and all the stuff that I learned in school, it's, it's all the same, but the, the location is really what makes them so special. Clearly, that's why all these little regions around the world are so special, like Burgundy and, and Italy and all these different cool places that are so different. Um, but to me, I've never seen so much color in wine than I have in Argentina. High elevation, really strong UV light in the skins. They can grow almost any grape. I've seen some Pinot Noir there, but I think uh, the bigger reds do really well in the Uco Valley. But the most color I've ever, think, ever seen, even over Washington State, which I thought had amazing color because it's up at a higher you know, latitude there and it really gets some great sunlight. Pretty short growing season in Washington though. And some of the most sandy soils I've ever worked with um, in Washington, super well drained, a um, lot of wind and just really pretty intense um, sunlight over there and really hot days. Um, and so I think Washington though is one place that literally can grow um, between, you know, northern to north to south can pretty much grow any varietal out there. Um, I think the same goes to, with Oregon, of course, you know, when you talk about Southern Oregon versus the Willamette Valley. Um, but I think in, in Washington, they're specifically bigger on the big reds with smaller amounts in the cooler climates versus I think we're a little more heavy into the cool climate region and than the big climate, uh, the big red regions here um, in Southern and Eastern Oregon. So to me, um, but Oregon has been the most challenging because I've made wine here the, the most years, but also um, I just think that the weather really is what we get to play with here. And you think you've seen every vintage, uh, you know, and I talked with Lynn who's seen so many more vintages than me and I, 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 see, I see it from so many pioneers that they're just like never the same vintage. And I think that could be said in every region, but I think specifically in Oregon, they're just so drastically different year after year and you're constantly having to really um, adjust and really uh, try to make the best wines possible with what you're given. And um, we hedge our bets here. We have to reduce yields right away. We have to really focus on trying to get these grapes ripe, if you will, um, by that September, October time where we know there's not gonna be a whole lot more left. So um, I think there's, there's some amazing things in all these regions I've worked in, um, but to me, Oregon's kind of home, which it is, so, mm -hmm. yeah. You talked earlier about the, about the site here uh, and then the vineyards you work with uh, and the, the ability to know them better here than at a larger facility. So tell me about the time it takes and the, and the way you learn a site like this and learn your blocks and other vineyards, and more specifically, what you're looking for in other vineyards when you're, when you're looking to buy fruit from elsewhere. What is it you want from other places and how do you get to know what what you're going to get sure i think 
you got you got to walk the vineyard. There's no way you can't drive your car by and look out like I would in Washington sometimes and be like, okay, some of those leaves are starting to yellow. We should probably pick this 50 tons tomorrow and taste a couple grapes, and then you got to go your next 50 acres. And um, to me, especially this property here is so variable in multitudes of soil types, different clones, uh, a few different white varietals on top of the pinots, but you walk within a two acre block here and that third of the, the block may be a little different and the middle might be a little different. So you have to fine tune it in the vineyard first. So working with our team on cover crop management, on nutrients uh, in the vineyards, on really, um, you know, the, the yields that we'll do on certain blocks and portions of blocks and really trying to balance the vines mm -hmm. and make sure they're healthy. I think stress vines are not good. I think overly vigorous vines are not good. I think there's a happy medium in there. And there's times where they, they when they stress out a little bit later in the season, that may not be the worst thing in the world, but really keeping healthy vines and micromanaging within these little blocks is really important to us. So I think that part of it is important because you have to walk it to see those little spots and you really have to spend the time out there. So the first five years here, um, I spent way, way more time than I do now because I have a team that I work with now that really can look for some disease pressures and pest pressures and all the other things we're constantly monitoring for, but also how we can maybe fine tune the different blocks and the vineyard so um, I can go out with them and get a bigger snapshot of it a little bit quicker than I used to, but knowing that I know every inch of this vineyard and where there used to be posts that were a little longer that broke in the windstorm of 2014 or you know where we dug soil pits for Oregon Pinot Camp or anything that may have done on this property uh, from the beginning on I think um, but spending the time out especially when I was early on in my career here at Alexana just spending the time in the vineyard talking to our vineyard team talking to Lynn who's been working with the blocks having that kind of understanding of them making the wines all the way from the grape to the bottle every year for five ten years now and getting to see these vines that were planted in 2003 six and seven really get into their teenage and starting to kind of get past those now and really moving into their more mature age mm -hmm. and their roots are getting deep because we don't irrigate here and really when i think i know a block though like in the middle section here it's got a lot of landslide material that has kind of sloughed off over the years off of warden hill we always thought they were mostly sedimentary because there were some nice layers of sedimentary, but they had been covered up. You know, some volcanic had been covered up. So as we've seen some of the middle sections kind of evolve, they taste less like our sedimentary soils that are mostly on the west lower elevations um, and more like our east side volcanic soils that are on some of the kind of medium to higher elevations here because these roots have actually gotten past that initial layer of sedimentary soils as we use excavator, excavators to find out as we've done OPC soil pits. <laughs> like, wow, there is uh, some volcanic. And we took 70 drill holes out here when Dr. Ivana bought the property. But even now, we'll still find different pockets, especially in the middle that's so variable of things we didn't think were there and starting to see these profiles in the finished wine. So um, watching these vines grow, Spending the time in the vineyard, I think, is how you really are able to, to learn and to, to fine tune these grapes. And, but constantly being on your toes and understanding they're, they're a growing organism that are gonna change and they're gonna evolve. And eventually they're gonna get to a point where they're not as fruitful and you make a decision um, mm -hmm. based on the history of the vine and mm -hmm. fruitfulness and all the stuff. Cause you know, 50, 60 years is a, is a great age in a vine, but you see vines that are hundred plus years old in some regions. So you just gotta take care of them. Mm -hmm. What about on other sites that you work with? What are you looking for to bring in that maybe you can't, something you can't produce here? 
Yeah, it's like, I think the different ABAs in Oregon are so different because of the soils and the, you know, Yamhill Carlton very much for our site that we work with over there is lower, lower elevation, 100% sedimentary soils, really gentle slope instead of like our steep slopes here in the Dundee Hills. And so early picking, really ripe flavors, you know, and I love, I love the acidity that we get over there, even though it's fairly warm and well-drained soils that can have smaller canopies, but I think it shows this great minerality. And, and so I'm looking for distinctive characters that we can do for um, vineyard designates. That's mostly what we're looking for. And so a very distinct character that's different because we have 56 acres here. That's a lot of wine made from that. So we have a lot of different blends we do from this estate, but having something different, especially in the offsite, is important to me. Um, but in terms of flavors and all that, yes, I want it to be different, but in terms of vineyard management, it needs to be very similar to what we do here. So really working for, you know, live certification is important to us. We work with some organic and different practices, uh, you know, without being certified per se, but I think it's important to be sustainable and to really focus on the vineyard and, and to really give back. Being an Oregonian, growing up at Salem, I think it's really important to really have these lands available for you know, many, many generations to come and make them hopefully even better than when we got them. I think that's something that's important and can be tough, you know, especially with a, a monoculture culture of growing grapes. We're growing one single thing for the most part in a vineyard, but luckily with live certification, you have to have some diversity. And so we have, you know, all sorts of trees and you can hear the birds chirping in the background. And, you know, it's great to have that biodiversity and in using your, your cover crops and all these different things that are so important at our estate here is definitely something I, I really think is important offsite. So we only work with people that have the same philosophies as that. Um, and over the years, it's it's been fun to kind of fine tune that. But fortunately, the first few years, we were able to really get involved with about four main growers from a few different regions. Um, and we've worked with fruit from every AVA in Oregon, but we just, I think it's the people and the, and the vineyard. You can't, you can't really change that per se um, when you're getting grapes and so having good people out there that own these properties that want to do the right thing want to give back to Oregon and, and make these vineyards long term you know and are not just in there for profit they're they're in there for having their name on a bottle hopefully because they'd made those grapes as best they possibly could that year and so you know working with uh, Eola Amity vineyard that we work with same idea working with um, Ribbon Ridge and Shehel Mountains and McMinnville AVAs, like we've really been fortunate to find some great growers that are bought in to what we feel is the best of practices. And so looking over there to them, making sure they're doing maybe not the exact same things as what we're doing, but have that big picture in mind and are really um, focused on nothing but quality. And that's where, you know, working with a lot of uh, vineyards um, by the acres can be a, a tough thing in Oregon. Uh, we pay by the acre for the most part because I feel I want to give back to these vineyard, um, you know, owners in a tough year. But I also, in a great year, will benefit too. But if we are all on the same page and we're going to make them profitable year after year, hopefully, and, um, and continue this growth and success together, mm -hmm. um, that's how we can really make it. And that's the collaboration part of Oregon that I feel is, I think Washington, Australia, New Zealand, Argentina, California, they all have it. But I just find in Oregon, there's just such an, a collaboration between the growers and the wineries. And then within those winery groups and vineyards, just the collaboration of trying to make things better. And so finding like-minded people is really important. Mm -hmm. 
So what are the what are the biggest changes you've seen in Oregon wine since you became part of the industry? Yeah, I think my first vintage here was 2006. Um, I was still trying to figure out how you turn uh, grapes into a liquid, I think, at that point, and <laughs> what French oak is versus American oak. Um, but now, um, I think, obviously, some more focus from a lot of outside money coming in from, of course, from Europe and from California and even some Washington players coming into Oregon and getting it out there. I think. It's going to be tough to mass produce Oregon Pinot Noir. I think it can, it can be done, maybe not in the Willamette Valley as, as, as easily because just the way things are set up um, and the, the bigger hills and stuff, it will eventually happen. But I think, to me, the biggest change over the last 10 to 15 years is definitely having, having more um, kind of exposure out in the national market. I've been traveling ever since I started here all across the country and selling wine, and it's been amazing to me how many more people in the last five years know about Oregon Pinot Noir and Oregon Chardonnay or Riesling or Pinot Gris than knew five, 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think having bigger wineries come in, having more corporate money, if you will, or um, different wineries that uh, own you know, wineries around the world or in different regions come into Oregon, it, to me, it hasn't been that scary or intimidating, like they're gonna take over the, you know, the, the whole wine country here and mass produce Oregon wine. I think it's done nothing but create more exposure and, and get people bought into it. And so I can go over to North Carolina and, and do wine dinners over there and people are, are like, oh, Alexana, I know that wine. And we're still only making a small production, mm -hmm. but they know Oregon wine and that gets them hooked by some of these bigger players that are have a bit wider reach, if you will, and are able to get out to a few more places. And so I've seen definitely uh, a bigger exposure across the nation. I think it's been great. I've seen more tourism hap happen. When I started, Warden Hill was a gravel road. Um, it, it ran through one of my Subarus, so I'm onto my third one now. But uh, my second Subaru took a pretty good beating building the winery and coming up and down that road constantly. So we got that paved finally. But a lot of that's to do with kind of the resurgence of Warden Hill with a few other wineries that have been built at what I like to call the front side. We're kind of on the back side of Warden Hill, but uh, we're getting vineyards planted all around us right now. And it's been really fun to see the tourism happen and to really get the people out here. And, the, and, and we get these roads paved because of that, I think, because these businesses are being successful because of not just our local following, which is definitely a huge part of our business and will always be. And there's just a great following in Oregon. But the people outside of the state and the country, if you will, even, it's been amazing to see the last three to five years, especially, has just really blown up. And I remember when Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, maybe you'd have one group. Now it's like you can't even see, you know, maybe not this day and age with the, the virus, but before, I mean, it, it would be just as busy as some weekends. And we've had to shift to appointment only, and we've had to shift to certain things to kind of slow if you will we're building a brand new tasting room addition right now because all this tourism has happened mm -hmm. um it's i think the outside money has helped a lot with exposure the tourism is obviously because of some of that but also because i think the quality of wines we make here they keep going up and i think that's part of the deal with the collaboration of winemakers around here we're making one percent of the country's wine. We're not fighting each other, if you will. Um, we're fighting a lot of other people in the country that are making a lot more north and south of us. But what we are 
is putting our stamp on is, is it's quality driven as much as possible here. Yes, the prices are higher, but the yields are lower and there's so much more going on um, with these small little boutique wineries around here that it's just all hand done and very small lots that I really love and cared for throughout the process. So to see the quality continue to increase, to see more people come in, not only in the winery sides and vineyard sides, but also the tourism has been really fun. So you've mentioned uh, mentioned COVID a couple times today. We're obviously still dealing with the effects of that. We'll be for who knows how long. Yeah, oh. should I put my mask back on for this one? No? Okay. Okay. So uh, tell me about how that has affected your business uh, individually, personally, and also how maybe it's affected your thoughts on the future for Oregon wine. Yeah, I mean, it's changed, it's changed restaurants and wine industries drastically. I've seen friends, a lot of friends lose their jobs or be furloughed, and that's scary. I mean, especially not knowing what the future holds, and we're very still only a few months into this right now, and um, it, I, I don't see this going away anytime soon, per se. Um, it's in terms of the changes especially i don't see some of the changes that have been made in safety and protocols and the way we do things in restaurants and wineries that i don't think that's going away for a long time and so we've obviously had to shut down because of the governor's orders for a few months there uh, but we also really were trying to be as safe as possible so even when things were reopening i think the um the management owners here we work with and me with my team really trying to be as safe as possible is really um you know, the goal. So slow reopening, only by appointments, and all the things that we've been doing the last couple months, I think work really well. But in the winery, we're kind of in a tough spot because the wines don't care that there's COVID-19 out there. They, the grapes don't care. I mean, they don't care that they're being touched as much maybe if, if you don't do it, but we don't have that luxury, if you will, to kind of not do things in the winery or in the vineyard, especially as this hit right at bud break almost really started hitting hard you know march april we had bud break and so the vineyard teams have been working really hard but also my wine team we bottled the week before the shutdown surprisingly worked out perfect for us not so great for some of my friends that didn't get the bottle and had to wait a few months but we were able to get it in before there was any safety or concerns at that point and so then we shut down but wine still needed to be topped in the barrel we still had all of our Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from 2019, some still going through malolactic, but all still in barrel, um, needing attention. We needed to start thinking about blending for the summer, which is happening right now in June. Uh, I guess it's July now, and uh, see, you can't even, that's the other thing that it does to your head. You don't even know what month or day it is anymore because it's just, it's, it's just, it seems like it's been the same day for like Groundhog Day for four months. But um, we did have to split our shifts in the, in the winery between the three of us when we were still figuring out what all this craziness was and what we maybe needed to do to be safe. Um, and so we, we didn't see each other for a couple months there. Um, we talk constantly, we do a lot of, you know, as much work from home as you could, but in the wine world, when you're hands-on and you gotta do things in the winery, you, you kinda have to be here. So um, we were fortunate that it worked with the, the team we have because we're a pretty small team and um, we were able to do things safely as we've, uh, kind of started to reopen the tasting room and things have reopened in the counties. Um, we're starting to implement more safety protocols but bringing the team back together um, so we can able to get you know wines in the tank for blending and start bottling. Um, but just the the safety part and the it rides really heavily on me as the manager of the winery and so just being on top of it and being ahead of the game if we can 
and just doing the best of practices is what we're going to do. And then the scary part is bringing in, you know, people for harvest. We don't have the luxury of being a large winery that doesn't need a lot of extra help during harvest. So we're bringing in a few interns, but um, we're going to try to keep most of them local this year um, and, and not bring a lot of out-of-state people and not bring a lot of extra temp labor in. And um, we're actually going through with, a, you know, some of the associations here in the valley, we're actually going through a lot of pre-planning for harvest and really thinking ahead for these big things that have to happen because wine, like I said, doesn't care there's a virus and it's going to continue. Um, but it could easily be shut down if we don't um, all kind of try to do our best and keep this at bay and be safe and distance. And so um, a, lot of, a lot of things have changed, but a lot of things are the same. <laughs> I actually feel like with this, we actually are working harder, uh, even though we're not here as much together. I think it's a lot more work when you're separated. I think teamwork's, uh, teamwork makes the dream work, right? Um, so I think it's really, it's been fun to have the team back, but it's just not the same because we're not able to taste together in the same sensory lab when there's people around each other or you know six feet apart with masks on constantly we're masked on at all time at the winery so it's it's definitely been weird but become the new norm and something that's going to be evolving and it's going to constantly be changing and this is you know just the beginning like i said so um but it, I, I take a lot of pride in making great wine but i think my number one goal is safety here and it always has been and so if anybody ever got infected, that would be horrible, but I think um, preventing that is the biggest thing we can possibly do here. And so a lot of preventative majors and just having protocols in place if something were to happen, um, just being planned, planned ahead with, um, I think it's important, but um, we'll see. I'll talk to you again in six months. <laughs> You're talking about uh, momentum, Oregon's momentum over the last three to five years, and we've heard that a lot of places that Oregon, the 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 the, the kind of notoriety, the, the 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 press. Does this change what you see for Oregon's future, and what what do you see Oregon looking like, uh, wine industry looking like over the next decade? Yeah, I think the only thing that's I think changing for us, I, I feel, is just less tourism and national sales right now. But I'll tell you what, people are still drinking a lot of wine right now, and direct consumer sales has been super strong, and that's. The one thing about Oregon I think is really great is we can connect with those consumers and I think um, it's going to take time to get people to come back out and feel comfortable but we're already seeing it and I think people are able to do it safely so I think the quality of Oregon wine is going to really be something that holds that um, and, and holds that mark. There are going to be wineries that aren't able to reopen because finances and other losses that have occurred from this. but. I think if we can stick together as a, a team, uh, Oregon, Team Oregon, if you will, all across southern, eastern, the northern Willamette Valley, I think it's important to, to stick together and collaborate like we've continued to do and get through this together and people will come back and will grow. But I think in the next three to five years, there's going to be some residual effects from this and um, I'm not sure we fully know what's going to be um, happening. But what I do know, once again, is I think the grapes are still growing and the wines are still being made. Um, we just might have to do things a little differently, um, but I'm 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 very optimistic that I think um, we're going to grow back to even stronger and bigger than we ever were, and that's the trend. We've continually year after year surpassed any expectations and you know of any other region or anything else. Uh, Oregon's been there, and I think it's not it's not stopping anytime soon. We're only you know 50 some years uh, in right now um, still fairly young wine industry and I'm happy to be a part of it as you will as a kind of a second generation winemaker uh, even though I don't have a first generation in my family uh, making wine I think I'm um, kind of in that age group of a lot of the 
second generations who have started taking over. And we're gonna have to be innovative and I think this second generation has already started doing that with this. A lot of virtual tastings, a lot more um, virtual stuff mm -hmm. and, um, and a lot, of, lot less tours and tastings on the site, but um, I think that's where um, the more innovative we can be and Oregon's great about that, um, I think the better we'll do in the long run. Mm -hmm. What about as you look ahead for yourself and for Alexana? What what's what comes next? What are you what are you hoping for? What are you fearing? What are you expecting in the next five ten years? Well, I'm fearing for my two daughters to turn eighteen. Um, so I have a three year old and a six month old. So that's the fear is the next uh, seventeen and a half years um, of getting through all this. Uh, three year old man, that's that's a fun age. But um, no, um, I have a beautiful wife Megan and my daughter Claire and Ava, um, and they're just. Um, all been at home for three months actually uh, straight and they haven't really left and so I think they're what's really keeping me going and knowing there's the light at the end of the tunnel it's fun to come home after a tough day and see those guys but um, it's also terrifying at times but um, <laughs> some of the, the best experiences but um, I think it's really um, for me I want to continue to grow here at Alexana I love what we've been doing. We actually, fortunately, um, this year just bought a property right next door that is gonna be another 30, 40 acres of grapes in the next two years. So kind of preparing for that's gonna be really important with my professional career here. Continuing to fine tune these blocks. Uh, we planted a few more clones this year on this property. And so really um, continually diving into my craft, which is Oregon Pinot Noir wine making. I love making white wine, Pinot Gris, Riesling, Chardonnay, um, those are fun. I, I think we do really well at those two. Um, but the big production is Pinot Noir. And so I really, I feel there's a lot of new things coming out in terms of equipment and technology, but also a lot of new science coming out. So to me, constantly learning, constantly evolving as a winemaker, not being set in your ways. I think there's certain things I'm pretty set in, but um, and sanitation and safety and all these things. but how we actually process the wines, how we ferment the wines, what we put in the wines, what barrels we use, what different forests, what different toasts, whatever it may be, that's constantly evolving. And I'll never have a recipe to hand to you and say, this is the best wine in the world right here. And I don't think anybody ever does. And that's the fun part of it, is there's so many variables going into it. You constantly have to be learning, constantly have to be you know, improvising, especially in the moment during harvest, but improving, hopefully. And sometimes things don't always work out in the trials you do. So constantly doing the trials to learn maybe what I can or can't do. And I think learning from the big scale, you can do that a little bit easier there because if you screw up a 7,000 gallon tank, you can probably put it away into another 100,000 gallons worth of that same blend and be okay. Here we don't really have that luxury. So we have to be really strategic on the trials we work with. But. Um, I love doing trials every year. It's about 10% or less of our grapes, but a lot of different ferments and things that we do to trial to, to make sure we're on top of our game mm -hmm. and working with our friends and collaborating and doing the IPNCs in Oregon Pinot Camp, especially where we are able to really get together and taste each other's wines all from the same vintage and really see um, what, what worked and maybe what didn't for different vintages. And so for me, I hope I could get another good 20 vintages in me at least. I'm 38 now. and. I see uh, it being a, a distinct possibility of them all being in Oregon. And um, I think everybody says, I want to do my own brand. Uh, I think that also terrifies me because that's all, I, after putting together two wineries and, and just the amount of money and infrastructure and time it takes and then having that riding on your shoulders as your whole family's 
you know, money can be scary, but um, you never know what the, the future might hold with that. I think every winemaker is lying if they say they don't want their own brand, but um, at this moment, I'm really excited with what we're doing here uh, at Alexana, and I think continually evolving here and um, just getting better and better each year. I think we have been, and, and that's the goal. All the questions that I have for you. Okay. Anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover today that we should have covered? No. Why are you shivering in the beginning? <laughs> uh, they'll, they'll see the jacket come on. It'll be real smooth. No. <laughs> I think that hit a lot of different ones. Hopefully, I nailed Great. a few of them. Feel Great. free to cut out any of the stupid stuff. It was probably good timing with the hedger over there. Perfect timing. Thank you so much for joining us today. No, it's great. I appreciate it. And uh, how long until you guys will be? Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.